please stand for the reading of God's Word. The scripture reading for this morning is Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Hear now the word of the Lord. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this, uh, this past August and September, I did a series in which we considered the correlation between gospel doctrine and gospel culture. We, we borrowed Ray Ortland's definition of those terms. We, we defined gospel doctrine as the message of God's grace for undeserving sinners. And we defined gospel culture as the shared experience of God's grace by undeserving sinners. We said that gospel doctrine, or as Paul says here in verse 14, the truth of the gospel must be appropriated. It must be taken in. It must sink deep into our hearts in order for gospel culture to form. As we do, as the, as the gospel does go deep into our hearts, it will overflow into the lives of other people. Like doing a cannonball at a pool party. It'll just splash over. You guys remember cannonballs and pool parties, right? Adults? Kids? The kids here do. They absolutely remember pool parties. There's nothing more fun on a hot summer day than spending the whole day with your friends having a pool party. Friends, cousins, siblings, everybody together. You're doing front flips and back flips off the diving board. You're, you're playing Marco Polo all day long. You're, you're beating each other up with pool noodles until mom and dad say, stop it. Right? You're getting water up your nose. There's snot everywhere. There's other stuff everywhere, but we won't talk about that. Right? It's a pool party. It's fun. Listen, here's the analogy. When you, when you dive into the gospel, when you just jump in like a cannonball into a swimming pool, the gospel splashes over. It flows over into the lives of other people. The deeper, we dry, the deeper we dive into the truths of the gospel, the more the gospel will overflow into the lives of those around us. And that's what was happening in Antioch. That is what was happening in Antioch. Cephas, or Peter, 
was in Antioch with other Jewish Christians, and they were eating with Gentile Christians. And that fact alone, we're going to unpack that in a minute, but that simple statement alone in Galatians 2, that they were eating together, is an indication that gospel culture was happening in Antioch big time. The greatest boundary that we could imagine, the greatest boundary that they had experienced prior to that had been obliterated by the gospel. And they were swimming in that fact until they weren't. Peter, as Paul so boldly said to his face, stopped living in line with the truth he believed. He hadn't forsaken gospel doctrine. He had just stopped swimming in it. He had forsaken the gospel for human approval. He was doing backflips into the empty pool of human approval. And he was taking other people with him. This passage in Galatians 2 is the key text. It's the locus classicus of gospel doctrine. This is it. it tells us how richly gospel doctrine can be enjoyed by, by telling us, giving us an indication of what was happening in Antioch between these Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. This passage also shows us how quickly gospel culture can be lost, but it also tells us how it can be recovered. Friends, I talked, you know, last month, August, September, October, you know, August, September, about moving from Letchworth to the Grand Canyon and our experience of gospel culture. And this text tells us how. So three things to see from it. First, the experience of gospel culture. Second, the loss of gospel culture. And then third, how it gets restored. First, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that you would help us. Lord, would you open our eyes? Would you, would you reveal to us, to our hearts, the truth of your word Lord, would you apply it to our lives uh, by the power of your spirit? Lord, the, this rich doctrine of justification, the fact that the guilty get acquitted, Lord, would you let that truth cheer us, warm us, transform us, change the way we think about everything? And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, the experience of gospel culture. There was an experience of gospel culture in Antioch, unlike anything that had ever been experienced, anything. And you might argue anything that's been ever experienced since then. So here's Cephas, or Peter. He's in Antioch. It tells us in verse 11, Cephas came to Antioch. So Cephas, Peter, Peter the apostle, Peter who had walked with Jesus, Peter who had been among the big three who confirmed Paul's gospel in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, which we looked at last week. This is, this is Peter. Peter is in Antioch. Antioch was a Gentile city. In Acts chapter 11, it tells us that that's the place where believers were first called Christians. So here's Peter, a Jewish Christian who's in Antioch. That, that church in Antioch began soon after the, the ascension of, of Jesus Christ, most likely within 10 years. There's a church in Antioch, and Peter's there, and he's eating with Gentiles. Now, again, behind that phrase, just an indication of rich gospel culture. You remember some of the things we talked about uh, back in 
August and September when it came to gospel culture. We looked at Luke chapter 15 and that great um, parable in which Jesus talked about the, the prodigal son returning home and, and the joy, the delight of the father as he ran to him. The father, of course, representing God. The, the younger brother, the, the tax collectors and sinners that were present as Jesus was telling that parable. And of course, you remember in Luke chapter 15 in the parable of the prodigal son that there was another prodigal. The older brother, the, the, the religious one, the Pharisees, who were off in the field looking at the celebration that was going on in the, in the, in the house, seeing their father overjoyed at the return of the son who had squandered everything in reckless living. And, and, the, and the point of the parable is ultimately Jesus saying to those, those older brothers, those Pharisees, those scribes, will you come in? Will you believe that you are just in need of repentance? You too must return to the Father in repentance in order to be saved. But if you do, you will enter into the joy of the Father. The whole point of those three parables in Luke chapter 15 is Jesus is saying that like, like the shepherd who rejoices because he finds the lost sheep, like the woman who rejoices because she found the lost coin, like the father who rejoices because the son has come home, and then all three say, share with me in my joy. So too, church. <laughs> this is us together sharing in the joy of the father over sinners who repent. That's gospel culture. And of course, we, we thought about passages like Romans chapter 15, verse 7, where Paul writes, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That deep, profound welcome that, that encourages along with passages like 1 John chapter 1, where, where it says, as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This, this encouragement to just kind of a, a radical and redemptive vulnerability, a, a transparency with one another that is itself part of the fruit of the work of the gospel among the people of God. This, this rich gospel culture, it was present in Antioch in spades, but it was happening at a level that's greater than anything that we have experienced. You see, we're mostly alike. They were radically different. We're talking about Jews, and we're talking about Gentiles. There had been a barrier between them. What Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following, a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. The, the purity laws that God had given in the Old Testament set them apart as distinct from the nations around them. That law had been obliterated. There was table fellowship happening in Antioch. You, you've heard us say plenty of times that, that table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles in the first century is not like me having you over for meals one day, right? It's, it's not like that. It's like radically different people saying, I want you to come over on Christmas Eve. We're going to kind of hang out together. We've got some special family traditions on Christmas Eve. We want you to be a part of that. We've got a spare bedroom. Why don't you just spare the, you know, spend the night in the spare bedroom? Uh, we'll get up Christmas morning. We'll open gifts together. That, that big brunch that we do, you can do that. Like now we're getting, like, you know, you're like family. That's what it means to have table fellowship in the first century. And that's happening because this dividing wall of hostility was obliterated by the gospel. 
Some of you are old enough to remember the fall of the Berlin Wall, November 9th, 1989. During that day, an East German government official had a press conference in which he announced that there is now free travel across the borders between East Germany and West Germany, and, and consequently between East Berlin and, and West Berlin. That, that night, the News carried that fact, and, and, and by, by later that evening, before midnight, the, the, you know, the borders were open. The border guards didn't really understand what was happening, but they realized we've, we got no choice. The gates were opened, families were reunited, strangers embraced and danced and sang songs together. This, this barrier that had existed for 28 years was obliterated. Gospel obliteration is even more glorious. It doesn't reunite families. It often divides them. But it does reunite people or unite people across barriers that apart from Christ would seem insurmountable. The gospel, what Paul calls in Romans chapter 1, the power of God for salvation creates a union between believers that obliterates every earthly barrier that would get in the way. It's one thing when people who are basically the same enjoy gospel culture. That's beautiful, that's rich, it's a preview in a little way of the life to come. But it's another level entirely when people who are vastly different, people of different socioeconomic or, or ethnic or generational or differing capabilities, when, when people who are just different in ways that the world would say, mm, there's really not much you can do about that, when the gospel takes root in people like that and they're brought together, it, sends a, it gives a picture to the world. There's something distinct. There's something unique. There's something glorious happening here. And it was happening in Antioch until it wasn't. Let's talk at the, talk, look at the loss of gospel culture in this passage. Take a look at verses 12 and 13 with me. So, verse 11, Paul says he opposed Peter to his face because he stood condemned. And then he explains why he was so, stood condemned, meaning he was so obviously wrong. So, take a look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So there it is, the, the, just this devil, not just Peter, but Barnabas, Barnabas who had been Paul's companion in uh, so many of the, the church um, planting missionary journeys, and all the other Jews that were with them, that's what Paul just said, turned away. What did Peter do? It is not that Peter didn't know the gospel. He had heard, he, he, he confirmed when Paul came in Galatians 2, 1 through 10 that the gospel you're preaching is the same gospel that we've been preaching. It's not that Peter didn't know that he was, he, he could now eat with Gentiles. God had explicitly revealed that to him in a vision in Acts chapter 10. Peter, take, kill, and eat. You know, the sheets with all the unclean animals. And, and, and Peter, you know, protested and, and God said no food is unclean. Peter's now free to eat with Gentiles. He knew that. 
It's not even that Peter was concerned about God's opinion. What will God think if I eat with these Gentile Christians? What will God think if I, if I eat food that's previously considered unclean? What, what will God think about this? It's not the eyes of God that Peter is concerned about. It's the eyes of man. He feared the circumcision party. He feared this group of other Jewish Christians. Paul confronted him. Why? Well, at one level, it was because the, the truth of his gospel that he was proclaiming, the one true gospel, would be at stake if people ultimately followed Peter. Then you could have what John Stott called one gospel, two tables. One gospel, but fellowship for Jewish Christians and fellowship for Gentile Christians. You could have that, but Paul also was grieved at the loss of gospel culture. He points explicitly to this break in fellowship that in Ephesians chapter 2, he so gloriously celebrates. So Paul confronts him because, as it says in verse 14, take a look, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, so what he's saying there at the end is, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile. In other words, you're, you're eating food that's unclean. You're having fellowship with Gentiles. Expect the Gentiles to live like Jews. In other words, if you're going to retreat back into this way of living that says, I'll only eat with people of my kind. I'll only eat food that is considered clean or previously considered clean, what you're saying to those Gentiles is that they have to be like you if you're going to have fellowship with them. As he pulled away from Gentile Christians, he was saying, unless you will be like me, you can have no fellowship with me. It was totally fear of man. John Stott put it this way, the same Peter who had denied his Lord for fear of a maidservant. You remember. The same Peter who had denied his Lord for fear of a maidservant now denied him again for fear of the circumcision party. Gospel culture can be lost in the same way today. Yes, gospel culture will be lost when gospel doctrine is no longer upheld. That will happen. But gospel culture can also be lost when gospel doctrine is no longer being taken to heart, when it's no longer being appropriated, when we fail to realize that the gospel has to be appropriated, preached to our own hearts daily, if not more frequently. We can't think, well, I believed the gospel back then 37 years ago, and so therefore, of course, I'm still living in line with it. Peter's story would tell us differently. When the opinion of others is elevated to supreme importance, gospel culture can be destroyed. Peter wanted to be seen as righteous by his fellow Jews, and that destroyed his fellowship with those who weren't Jews. Peter wanted to be seen as righteous, as, as right, as justified, as accepted, as worthy by these other Jews. 
And when he did that, it destroyed his fellowship with those who are not Jews. Now, it is not a leap to see how that applies in our day and age. We're coming up on the midterm elections. We're already in a polarized nation. Now, before you think I'm judging you because you either are in a political party or you're one who would question whether any Christian could be in a political party, I'm not judging you. I don't know your heart. So if you're feeling convicted by the things I'm about to say, maybe you should ask, is this coming from the Spirit of God? Here's the reality, my brothers and sisters. It is possible for Christians in their zeal to be either Republican or Democrat or Independent to think to themselves, how could anyone who is truly a Christian be a member of the other party or of any party at all? And when that kind of thinking is present in your heart, it may be an indication that you are more concerned about your standing in the eyes of people who think like you do and consequently are inevitably pulling away from brothers and sisters in Christ who don't think like you do on this political spectrum or these political issues. When that happens, you're pursuing what could be considered a political righteousness, a righteousness that in a way, functionally speaking, in terms of the expression of gospel culture in a church would indicate that there's something else that you're adding to the gospel. Thinking like I do, voting the way I do. That is a precondition for an expression of gospel culture. That thinking destroys gospel culture. When that kind of thinking is Abandoned because the gospel obliterates those kinds of barriers, gospel culture can be richly enjoyed. And it sends a message to the world. There's something about these people. Some of them are Democrats. Some of them are Republicans. Some of them are independent. And yet they seem to love one another. How can that be? The gospel is the reason why that can be. And we can roll out into all other kinds of, of um, uh, illustrations, right? Between people of varied socioeconomic statuses or ethnic backgrounds or differing capabilities. I mean, all these different things that I, that I touched on earlier. Everything that, would, that, that divide, that the world tends to look at and emphasize the division, the gospel obliterates those walls and calls us into fellowship with one another that's deeper than anything the world has ever known. May gospel culture be rich here at Grace Church and in every church where the gospel doctrine is being faithfully proclaimed. But we have to be humble enough to recognize how easily we can contribute to its loss. It can be so subtle. And feel so right and yet be a tragedy. So when it's lost, how does it get restored? Let's look at Paul's rebuke of Peter once again. Take a look at chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. 
Paul writes, and now he, Paul's talking to Peter here. Okay, so this is a continuation in verses 15 and 16 of Paul recounting for the churches in Galatia what he said to Peter in Antioch when all this went down. All right, so verses 15 and 16. We ourselves, Peter, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So stop there for a second. We ourselves are Jews by birth, but not Gentile sinners. He's just emphasizing the fact that we had, we have such a a heritage, a rich privilege of having been part of the covenant people of God. And yet even we know that salvation is by grace through faith, not by works of the law. So continue on. We ourselves know this person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Please note what Peter didn't, I'm sorry, what Paul didn't do in his rebuke of Peter. Paul did not say to Peter, Peter, you've forgotten that we are all united as Christians. Peter, you have forgotten that no food is to be considered unclean anymore. Peter, you've forgotten that we can enjoy this rich gospel culture as Christians, whether we're coming from a Jewish background or a Gentile. He, he He doesn't focus on the horizontal. He focuses on the vertical. And specifically, Peter's heart before God, that we're justified, or the word uh, counted righteous, is, it happens three times. <laughs> you see it three times in these two verses. Actually, in the, in the one verse, verse 16, Paul, he, 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 he hammers on this issue of the doctrine of justification. Peter, Peter, you've forgotten you're acquitted. Let's step back. You've, you've forgotten that you were guilty before God. You've forgotten. And you've, you've been justified. You're acquitted. Not, not by anything that you did, but by, by what Jesus did through, through his bloodshed. You, through faith in him, are free, not guilty, justified in God's sight. Acquitted. Peter, you are among the guilty who get acquitted. You see what he's doing. Peter, you've forgotten. In the eyes of the only one who matters, you are accepted. Who cares what the circumcision party thinks? You've got God's approval, you've got God's love for you in Christ. It's never failing. You've been acquitted, Peter. Peter had forgotten that. He wasn't appropriating that truth and he wasn't any longer living in line with it. This doctrine of justification, that we are declared right in God's sight, not because of anything we've done, but entirely based on the merit of the blood of Jesus Christ. That truth that God looks upon us, that that common definition you've heard, just as if we've never sinned, that is the great leveler and the great elevator of the people of God. It levels us because every single one of us has to admit 
Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Follow I I to the fountain, fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Every single Christian has to be leveled to the dust, and yet that same leveler elevates us. The guilty are acquitted entirely by grace. What's the common denominator between a Christian who is a Republican and a Christian who is a Democrat and a Christian who is an Independent? Both are guilty and both got acquitted through faith in Jesus Christ. What's what's the difference for Christians between differing socioeconomic backgrounds or all the other ways in which people tend to be divided? Both all guilty, all acquitted through faith in Jesus Christ. The guilty go free by sheer grace alone. I love the way Dane Ortland. I referenced Ray Ortland at the top. Dane is his boy. I love the way Dane Ortland put it in his devotional on the Psalms. Psalm 143, he says this, the world is not made up of righteous people and unrighteous people. Do you believe that? The world is not made up of righteous people and unrighteous people because the Bible tells us that no one is righteous. The world is made up of people who know they're not righteous and those who don't. By God's grace, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have had something revealed to you that you would in your flesh, rather not have ever known, I'm guilty. And yet by God's grace, you've been pardoned. You are counted righteous in the sight of God, not because of anything you did, but because of what Jesus did in your place. Living the perfect life, the life of obedience, the truly righteous life that none of us could live, and then going to the cross and bearing the punishment that we deserve for failing to do so. That levels us, it elevates us, and the more we draw it into our hearts, the more that joy spills over into the lives of those around us, and we experience more of gospel culture, the gospel culture that is a preview of the life to come. What do we learn from this passage? We learn that the key to gospel culture is heart appropriation of gospel doctrine. We must be continually taking it to heart. We also learn from the example of Paul that it's worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for. Who do we fight against? Uh, The world, the flesh, the devil, the person that you look at in the mirror every morning. That's where the warfare takes place. But it's worth fighting for. Trust today in the Jesus that you trusted in a year or 10 years or 15 or 50 years ago. Your need of him has not diminished. His love for you hasn't either. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we pray that you would help us to take this gospel to heart. Lord, help us to to guard, you know, our flesh. You You know how we are. Lord, we presume upon your love and your grace so quickly. We act as though been there, done that when it comes to the gospel. Lord, convict us of the, of the ways in which we have 
diminish gospel culture by pulling away, even in just in our hearts, from those who just think differently than we do. When in reality, we have a shared union because of our union with you, a union that is secured forever by your grace alone, and a union that will be enjoyed for all eternity in the life to come. And yet, O oh Lord, at times we pull away because someone voted differently than we did. Forgive us. Lord, help us to enjoy what you have created and call us into a rich gospel culture here at Grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.